please be seated. And as you take your seat, you can open your copy of the Word of God with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. Luke 14, we're going to look at verses 12 to 24 this morning. As our Lord Jesus delivers one of his many parables, and this is the parable of the great banquet. The parable of the great banquet. I want to give you a little context here before we begin. Jesus is dining at the home of one of the Pharisees on a Sabbath throughout this chapter. And beginning in verses 1 through 6, he heals a man with a disease while dining, and he gives a stern rebuke to the religious leaders as they were always critical of him for healing on the Sabbath. And then in verses 7 through 11, Jesus makes note of his guests and how they pick and choose the places of honor at the table at this particular dinner. And he teaches a parable against this. And then the first few verses of our context today, verses 12 through 14, the first verses of our text, Jesus offers uh, another correction and instruction concerning who to invite uh, to a luncheon or a dinner party. So this kind of gives you a summary of what's going on. Jesus has been correcting, and we might even say insulting, everyone at the table for their cold heart, their target fixation on the Sabbath, as well as their selfishness in seeking places of honor at the table. And not to mention their exclusive invitation to others who can repay them. That's the setting. Very, very difficult setting. When you're invited to somebody's home and all you give is one constant string of insults, and you help them to understand that everything they've done here, almost everything, is wrong and needs correction. <clears throat> well, that gives you some idea of why verse 15 exists. You know, this is a tense situation. Everyone has been insulted and is probably speechless. When somebody says something to you, in a place where you think it shouldn't be said, often we are left speechless. And so, in order to provide, we believe, a little levity, we have verse 15. One of the dinner guests looks around, perhaps, and speaks up, How blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God! Isn't it wonderful to be able to eat bread in the kingdom of God? It may have been a sincere response to what Jesus had just said, or perhaps it was an attempt to lighten up the tense mood of this dinner party. Either way, the Lord Jesus took advantage of this opportunity to teach another parable, and that is the parable of the great banquet. The great banquet. And what we have here is basically three things. I'd like to walk through the parable with you and then make four observations or four applications uh, at various levels in our lives. And so, with the parable in mind, we have an invitation in verses 16 and 17, and then we have a rejection of those initially invited. And then thirdly, we have the reaction of the dinner host. So let's ask God, along with that outline, to pray and give us wisdom and insight as we study His Word. Heavenly Father, we're always amazed how you use lips of clay to communicate an eternal, timeless message. And so I pray now, Lord, that you would instruct us, that you would teach us, that you would encourage us 
correct us gently. Move us along in the Christian life. And Lord, for those who do not know you, I pray that you would draw them in, compel them to come into the kingdom as your spirit goes forth and touches hearts and lives. Do all these things and more, Lord, and we'll give you the praise and glory for what you will do. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, notice first of all an invitation. And we see that in verses 16 and 17. Jesus says a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who have been invited, come now for everything is ready. In the ancient world, a double invitation was often given. You would give an invitation to the invited guests and they would either acknowledge that and say, yes, I'll be there or no, I won't. And then the second invitation would come whenever the dinner was prepared. That was the custom of an invitation. You can find this in the book of Esther in chapter 5, uh, verse 8, and also in chapter 6, verse 14, an example of this. And so therefore, when a prominent banquet was given, invitations were sent out announcing the time of the upcoming meal. The guests would give their acceptance. And then they would be re-invited. Now, to accept the first invitation and decline the second one was unconscionable. It was an insult to the host. But that's what you have in this particular situation. That brings us to the rejection. Look at verses 18 through 20. All of the invited guests sought to be excused from the dinner. And three basic excuses are offered. Let's look at these for a few moments. In 18b, we have the first one. I bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Now, this is some excuse. Who in the world would purchase land in a town without looking at it first? Have you ever bought a home without looking at it first? Besides, the field wasn't going to run away. So the excuse is pretty lame. In verse 19, we have the second excuse. I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Now, this man didn't argue duty, but simply said, I'm on my way to something else. And the excuse was flimsy. No one would buy 10 oxen, that is 20,000 pounds of livestock, without knowing their capabilities. You don't try out livestock after you buy them. You try them before you buy them. And then the third excuse comes. Verse 20, I have married a wife, and for that reason, I cannot come. The third excuse was terse and rude. This man didn't even ask to be excused. And this man may have had a scripture in mind, Deuteronomy 24, 5, because in ancient Israel, a man was granted uh, a year off from military service if he married a wife. But this man apparently used that law wrongly because he was not exempt and he shouldn't have been exempt. And I'm quite certain the wife was invited as well to come and join him at this feast. And so all of these rejections, and that's what they are, they're simply rejections of the gracious invitation offered by the host. 
one by one, they make it clear they are not going to come. Well, then we see the reaction in verses 21 through 23. The slaves came back and they reported all this to the master. And then the head of the household became angry and said to his slaves, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. The host is upset, and for good reason. How could anyone turn down such a gracious invitation with everything furnished? And again, the reasons were so lame and so superficial. And so he tells the slave to go out into the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And after the slave does this, the host tells him to go into the highways and along the hedges. Basically, he's saying, all right, now go outside the city limits. Now that you've got everybody that is there in the city, go outside the city limits and go as far as you can until you find those who are going to fill my banquet hall. The host objective is to fill his house with those whom he will bestow his grace upon. And you'll notice they're very different than the first group, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the blind and the lame. There's handicaps, there's needs here. And with these individuals, there's not a preoccupation with all the things of the world. I want to make four applications. And this will be the bulk of our time together this morning. And there are various levels from the top down to the most important. The first one is this parable presents an expansion of God's kingdom to the Gentiles through the gospel. It is a theological application. This parable presents the expansion of God's kingdom to the Gentiles through the gospel. You see, the host in this passage is obviously the Lord God Almighty. And the dinner represents the consummation of the ages, the consummation of God's kingdom. We can go to Revelation 19, and we will read about the marriage supper of the Lamb. It will be a huge banquet at the end of time, whenever Christ returns to gather His people to Him. And the initial invitation represents the Jews. I mean, after all, all the way through the Old Testament, God made a covenant with the Jews. They were His chosen people. But the host's reaction represents the gospel going beyond the borders of Israel to the Gentiles and ultimately throughout the entire world. John 1, 11 and 12 says, He, that is Jesus, came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him to them... He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on His name. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 11, there, that is the Jews, their rejection is the reconciliation of the world. The Jews did not receive Jesus as the Messiah that they really wanted. And as a result, in God's divine and sovereign plan, not because plan A failed, but because this was God's sovereign plan that included the Jews' rejection, His gospel, the gospel of Christ, would go to all the corners of the world. And all those who were Gentiles, non-Jews, would be included. This is what the Apostle Paul calls the mystery, the mysterion, all the way through the New Testament. 
that God would choose a people for Himself and bless them with His covenants throughout the ages, and they would fail to recognize His Messiah. And in turn, that failure would lead to the success of the gospel going to the nations. You can rejoice in this parable, ladies and gentlemen, because the distance between a Jew and a Gentile overcomes the distance between God and any sinner on the face of the planet. No one is outside of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. If Gentiles could be included with Jews, then nobody is outside the realm of salvation. No one has gone too far. No one has sinned so much that they cannot be forgiven. No, the gospel of God's extraordinary grace makes it clear that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We can rejoice at this beautiful parable that God's kingdom expanded way beyond the Jewish borders. Now, a second application. This parable presents the danger of distractions in the Christian life. This parable presents the danger of distractions in the Christian life. The first two excuses had to do with material possessions. I bought a piece of land, I bought a yoke of oxen. The third with affections. And possessions and affections cover virtually every reason by which men and women give their regrets or their rejection to the kingdom of God. Now, obviously, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of these activities. The Lord is not opposed to you buying a house or a piece of land. He's not opposed to you buying tools to work your land, like a yoke of oxen. And He certainly isn't opposed to marriage. It's a good and wholesome thing. In fact, the Lord Jesus endorsed it in the New Testament. You see, the problem is not practice, what these people are doing, but of priority. It's not a matter of practice. It is a matter of priority. These excuses in no way preclude attendance at the dinner. I mean, the first two could easily rearrange their schedules to examine uh, and test their purchases and their animals. The third one is not being asked to go to war, be away from his bride for many months. And as soon as you spouse, they are to come together and enjoy this dinner. So the bottom line is it's a matter of priorities. These individuals simply do not want to attend the dinner. They are consumed with the enemies of the pagan life. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? And with what shall we clothe ourselves? You see, in summary, the kingdom of God can be taken for granted. It can become an inconvenient thing in the face of many other distractions in life. Remember the words of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. The writer says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. An encumbrance is different than the sin that entangles us. An encumbrance can be a good thing, which becomes a bad thing in our lives because our hearts turn more to it than they do the living God. And that's an idol, ladies and gentlemen. And that's why John said in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
And so whenever we begin to give our attention to the earthly, material concerns of this life, it has a tendency to suck the life out of the eternal, spiritual concerns that we all should be taken up with. Matthew 16, 24-26, Jesus said some very important words. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And before that, he said, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He went on to say, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, what Jesus is doing there is he is attacking the mentality that all life is is a matter of struggle, a matter of getting tools, a matter of getting property, a matter of storing up for the future. It's very, very material. It is very, very visible. But you see, the Christian life is way beyond that which is visible. It is a spiritual reality. And it acknowledges something that has happened inside of our hearts and something that opens our eyes spiritually to the realities beyond the material realm. And so we begin to see with the eyes of our hearts. And we begin to realize that life is more than what we shall eat and drink and put on. Life is a matter of knowing the living God. That's what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 8 this morning. The Lord was saying, don't forget, don't forget when you become successful, when you build houses and you buy lands, be careful. Because the material realm has such a tendency to choke the spiritual realm. That's what we see in the parable of the sower and the seed. You got a lot of people that start out well, they accept that first invitation. But for various reasons along the way, they stop following, they stop giving their lives and their hearts to Christ. And the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things come in and choke the Word. And so it's very important for us to be aware of the danger of distractions in the Christian life. Let me give you a practical example. To join a church and rarely participate in corporate worship or Bible studies or service opportunities is an example of talk, all talk and no action, of words without deeds. And this is to give in to the encumbrances of the world, making other activities a priority over the kingdom of God. Now, certainly you can serve in a variety of ways. But I remind you what the book of Ephesians says, that the church of Jesus Christ is the gathering and perfecting instrument of Christ's children. And that's why in chapter 4 of Ephesians, it makes it clear that the pastor's job is to equip the saints for the works of service. And it is assumed that those service works begin in the context of the body of Christ. There's so many people that join a church and then their commitment wanes many times for superficial and silly reasons. And they stop following. 
God give us the grace to be aware. Not only bad things can get in the way and cause us to stumble and trip, but there are many encumbrances, many distractions, good things that can have a tendency to become idols in our lives and keep us from the best thing, and that is following the Lord. A third application. This parable presents a call for contentment in the Lord and His provisions for everyday life. Contentment in the Lord and His provisions for everyday life. In 1 Corinthians 10, 6, I was reading it the other day, and the Apostle Paul tells us one of the the sins of the Israelites in the wilderness. The first sin is, he says, don't crave evil things. Now, I've always scratched my head over that. What in the world were they craving? Well, if you go back to Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6, you get an idea of what he's talking about. The Bible says the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish that we used to eat in Egypt. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look for or to eat except this manna. See, the problem on the surface, the Israelites simply wanted a change of menu. And after all, who wants to eat the same thing over and over again? But the Lord's provisions for them at this time was the manna. And the real problem was their discontentment and impatience with God. They were not satisfied with His provisions for the journey. They wanted more. Discontentment and impatience give evidence of one who is not seeking his or her satisfaction in the Lord. This passage calls for contentment. You see, the people in this parable look very Gnostic. You know, Gnosticism used to teach in the first century that all matter is evil and the spirit is good. And unfortunately, that got into religious and Christian circles even, where people started thinking, I look to the Lord for my spiritual needs, but then I look in other places, including myself, for my physical material needs. And this huge dichotomy came into being. And even Christians lost sight of the fact that you wouldn't have material needs or provisions unless the Lord provides them. He gives you everything for life and enjoyment. And so this idea of looking to Him on Sunday for spiritual things, but then on Monday I go out and I make my way in that dog-eat-dog world on my own. And that's what leads to the phenomenon that we see here. Where people say, well, at one time I had an interest in coming, but I'm busy right now. And I've got to go try out this oxen. I've got to go look at this land. This is going to be the provisions that will get me through. Translated in the 21st century, I've got to get this job. The thing that's on my list right now, most important to me, is this job. The thing that is most important in my life right now I am discontent, and I want a comfortable retirement. It can even become physical. Lord, I am not happy or satisfied with this disease that I'm suffering. Why don't you make things different? And we start to try to push the buttons and pull the strings because of our discontentment with our situation. 
I think one of the saddest things when the Lord Jesus comes back, one of the saddest phenomena is going to be believers having revealed to them how much they missed in this life when they could have been serving the Lord and yet they were wrapped up so tightly in other things. And you realize at that moment, why did I devote myself, body and soul, to this? When the eternal kingdom of God is right in front of me. We need to be content. And this parable certainly teaches that. The Apostle Paul said, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, underline that, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, the Apostle Paul was living for Jesus. If I live, it will be for Christ. If I die, it will be nothing but gain. But either way, I'm going to live for Christ because He lives in me. And that is the essence of my being. Deuteronomy 8, don't forget. When good things happen to you, especially material blessings, don't forget that the Lord God Almighty furnishes all of these. And make it your business at that point to do what Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you. A fourth application. This parable begs the question, what is the greatest hunger and thirst in my life? What is the greatest hunger and thirst in my life? As I've already mentioned, this grand banquet is a picture of the consummation of the kingdom of God, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And you know, the kingdom is often presented as a banquet to communicate total and complete satisfaction. Food and drink in abundance. This is why the Bible speaks so often of the hunger and the thirst of the human soul. Like in Isaiah 55, 1-3, Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money on what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, says the Lord. Eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. We choose to run after whatever we love in life. And I believe the Lord God Almighty, through the gospel, confronts us all the time. Are we going to walk the narrow gate? What do we love the most? Is it something or someone in this material realm? Or is it the Lord God Almighty, who gave His only begotten Son, who bled to death on Calvary's cross, so that your sins and my sins would be atoned for? And so that the division between us and the living God would be eliminated. So that we would be adopted into the family as children of God. I 
can't help but think about the psalm, Psalm 84, verse 2. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out to the living God. There is a hunger inside of every human being in the heart. John Calvin called it the seed of religion. And it cries out. It's the cry of the soul for something, for the one thing that can satisfy it. And that is the presence and the love of the eternal God. And yet human beings try to stuff so many things into that life and into that vacuum of the soul that do not satisfy. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? This is not bare theology. Being a Christian means a whole lot more than simply giving adherence to certain doctrines. It is a living vital relationship with the living God that touches you mentally and emotionally and willfully so that your life is propelled by His Spirit and your deepest longings are satisfied as a result of the Lord Jesus Christ living inside of you and living His life through you. And whenever we read this parable, in a very subtle way, it begs that question, what is the greatest hunger or thirst in my life. If you fast forward to the New Testament, Jesus puts it this way. When he stood with Peter, who had denied him three times, and he asked him three times, Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me more than these? We don't know what he meant by these. It could have been the boat and the tackle and all that tangible stuff. It could have been, Do you love me more than these other men? Could have meant both. And we have to negotiate that question. Is Christ real in my life? Do I truly love Him more than life itself? Or Psalm 63 says, Your love is better than life itself. Do you believe that? Have you embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? And if you have, are you being waylaid by encumbrances Things in this life that are not evil, that can become evil, whenever we give more attention and more love and more concern for them than we do our walk with Jesus Christ. May God give us the grace to come to know the Lord Jesus and to satisfy this longing inside of us for the first time. Or may the Lord continually guide us away from every encumbrance and every sin that could so easily entangle us until we reach His company in person in heaven. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank You for this great banquet and we look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Lord, along the way, help us to not fall into the absurd categories of these excuses they are absurd. They do not recognize and see the greatness of the kingdom and the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would bless us who are professing believers to walk with you faithfully, to avoid every encumbrance. And pray daily, Lord, sustain me. May I not enter into temptation. 
And Lord, for others who have never known you, I pray that you would make your presence known to them today, supernaturally and sovereignly, that you would open their hearts and lift them above the concerns of this world, that they might address their chief concern, the eternal concern of their destiny, that they might know the living God and have their sins forgiven because of the blood of Christ and enter into a dynamic relationship with a living God. Lord, do all these things and more. We'll give you the praise and the honor for all that you will do. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.